Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in the world as disciples of the Word. Good. Uh, all right, so welcome to the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. Uh, my name is James Johnson. I'm here, as always, with my good buddy. Nick Houston, executive director. Executive director and my supervisor, uh, apparently, I just found <laughs> out. Uh, I just found out. <laughs> uh, we have a special guest here today. Michael Devine is the director of worship. Michael, it's good to have you, man. How are you doing today? Good. We are here today to talk a little bit about worship. Um, and how we do worship here at Northside and how, you know, your personal process and how you feel worship fits within mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. larger framework of uh, the Christian experience. Um, but before we do that, if you don't mind, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, who you are. Um, I'm sure there's some people out there that don't know all the information about you. So just a little bit about how you got to Northside. Um, I'm originally from Chicago and uh, born, born in the city, raised in the suburbs. Um, went to Wheaton College, uh, and from there went to Luther Seminary and St. Olaf College for graduate work, um, and then started working my way southward, first in Northern Virginia outside D.C., and then Chattanooga, and while there, um, a member of the search committee for the uh, music position here at Northside, uh, I think quite literally stumbled into that church on a Sunday morning um, while visiting some friends and found me and reported me to Dr. Gill. And <laughs> here I am. <laughs> um, so I've been doing music since I was uh, a little kid. Um, a lot of it has been in the context of the church and church music, um, whether as, you know, growing up in children's choirs as a child, um, starting to do work while in college, first initially with a church children's choir program, um, and then ultimately directing adult choirs and then managing entire ministries. That's awesome. And you said you studied at uh, Wheaton. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what did you study there? I studied music. You studied music, uh, yeah. okay. I know you have some theology in your background mm -hmm. as well, though, too. Yeah, that was sort of a, just a secondary place of emphasis but not okay. like an official minor or anything okay. and All then right. in uh, graduate school um i've got a degree that's gradually going extinct um it's called a master of sacred music uh, oh, and wow. the reason i say it's going extinct is it's unique in that it is a seminary granted and accredited degree in music okay so because of that it has a you know a theology and biblical studies core of curriculum in addition to musical uh, background so it doesn't fit the traditional MDiv approach to theological education and doesn't fit the typical uh, master of music direction that most uh, graduate music courses take. So it blends the two together. Nick and I are big fans of worship. I know that worship is uh, important to Nick. We've talked about it several a times. a huge fan of worship. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what, what, what is the place of worship in the church mm. for you? Um, one of the most influential voices, um, both literally and figuratively from a reading perspective in my life when it comes to worship is from a scholar and, uh, and, and at times even mentor in my life named uh, Dan Block, who's an Old Testament uh, scholar um, in, you know, in nerdy circles is primarily known for his work in the book of Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. But Another passion of his life was uh, studies in worship, um, not just from an Old Testament scholarly perspective, but more broadly. And uh, I, off the top of my head, do not remember his full definition, but the two things that I remember most taking away as he would talk about worship is that um, God is both subject and object of, of, of Christian expressions of worship. And uh, without getting into the weeds on the grammatical implications of that, uh, it's always struck me that that is both the um, th sort of the ultimate focus of our attention in uh, designing a worship service uh, from the perspective of something like the music ministry here, but also uh, what it means as an individual Christian to be experiencing uh, worship um, for God to be both subject and object uh, of um, both affection and adoration in, in the context of a service. 
Um, when it comes to planning out both liturgy, which uh, in our sanctuary services uh, follows a particular and typical rubric. Um, Can you talk with, a little bit about what that what that means? What's a typical? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I mean, in terms of there is a predictable flow week to week. And I'm not necessarily saying that somebody walking in is going to be able to predict every element, but that moving from one week to the next, um, we have sort of an established order, whether it's, you know, moving from the prelude into a welcome, into an opening hymn, um, and sort of th those, log the, the logical step, stepwise motion from one element to the next is in some ways the very basic definition of liturgy. Um, that tends to be uh, somewhat of a academically used word, I think now, but every worship service, no matter um, how structured it, it is or is not intentionally, follows its own form of liturgy, simply meaning that it has a flow and an arc and an architecture. Um, even in, in contemporary worship contexts, the, uh, the flow and and attitude and emotion, the emotional arc of the service is still very important. I know, I'm sure Matt will talk about that when you interview him as well. Um, but when it comes to, you know, what do people um, experience? What do people say? Um, and how do they say it in the context or how do they sing it in the context of a worship service? Those are all incredibly important things. Um, there's a... Uh, uh, church historian um, that you probably know, James, uh, whose name is Mark Knoll, um, out of Notre Dame, and uh, although he's not Catholic, but that's where he teaches, um, and uh, he came up with this little phrase, for some reason I want to say it was in the 80s or 90s, it was Lex Credentia, or no, Lex Oh, and now I gotta get this right in the right in right order of all this fancy Latin. Uh, lex cantate, lex credentia, uh, which was in the he needed to phrase it in Latin because I think he published it in Harvard Theological right. Journal. But um, right. it, it, his point was, what you sing is what you believe, and uh, he uh, he intentionally put it in that controversial of an order. Um, and I think in part to stoke some. Uh, academic debate about sure, it sure. which is fun but i i think the point broadly <laughs> is um what what's coming out of our mouths as christians <laughs> uh particularly sung which um drills things down deeper into the heart fundamentally becomes what what you believe and sometimes thinking carefully about what you're singing <laughs> is as much an important part of what's being then taught um uh a pastor in putting together a sermon can carefully monitor and decide what's being said, how it's being said, what illustrations being used to drive a certain point home, that sort of thing. Um, when you're dealing with sung music in a worship service, those are the words that are literally on the lips of the people. Um, it's not simply going into their ears, um, which bears with it a little bit of different care and intentionality. Um, one thing that we do at Northside, uh, and every church does this in its own way and a little differently, but Bill plans out his sermon series. Uh, some churches follow an established church lectionary with passages of scripture. Um, but at Northside with Bill's sermon series, we have both a topic, sometimes keywords, um, most of the time, specific scripture passages that we can then identify either songs that directly pull from those same passages or at least uh, point to those same important themes that Bill's trying to hone in on. And sometimes in our worship meetings, we'll even talk about, okay, where do you see this sermon ending? Um, what can we do that is going to grab hold of this content in a unique and important way? Nick, I know that you you and I both grew up in non-liturgical, probably non-liturgical. Non-liturgical is fair. Um, what, what do you hold think? on, hold on. I'm, I'm, yeah, that, that's not true. You both grew up <laughs> this, in this you, 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 you both grew up in liturgical context. You just don't know it. <laughs> no, I, again, that that's but, but to the we have I think cultural definitions of what these words mean. 
in, in that, and because I'm the same way. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a church that things like the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed uh, were uh, very much actively not used in mm-hmm. in in church. Um, I remember what one time suggesting we do so, and the pushback, and it was very innocent pushback. It was not meant to be um, divisive or derisive, but it, it it was, oh, that's so Catholic. That 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 was the reasoning given to me as to why we don't do those things. Yeah. Um, you I mean, and in again in a big C little C uh-huh. <laughs> definitional argument about what Catholic is, that's actually a, a true statement. But liturgy is just simply what we experience week to week. So um, it's not something like uh, it's not a it doesn't have to come in the form of a structured prayer and structured uh, even. Um, Prayers of the people and all of those other elements. Responsive readings. Right. I mean, I mean, Responsive think, readings. Think that's the, yeah, that's I the mean, thing I think of. Mm-hmm. My guess is in, in that sense, we probably all three of us grew up in a similar situation where somebody got up and welcomed you to church. You had somewhere between 20 and 25 minutes of music. There was somebody who came up then and did some announcements, maybe a prayer. Maybe there was a specific time for offering. Maybe there wasn't. Then a sermon. Then a song after the sermon. And then an altar call. Oh, altar call! If it's in a good you gotta have the altar call, <laughs> and then have a good day, y'all. Right, right, right. Yeah. All no, the same elements had a rubric. Suddenly, yeah. that's a formula. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh huh. So, uh, and that's kind of where I was going to lead into. I, I, me and uh, Nick talk often about um, our our pseudo Baptist uh, upbringing, um, and and, and what the uh, and what that starts. And I remember that argument. I remember. I remember. Um, being told very clearly that the reason why we don't do certain things is because that's too Catholic or that's Catholic. You know, if you want to do that, you should go to a Catholic church, but they're not going to let you I didn't in. know there was another way to do it. <laughs> yeah. No, right, right. So, uh, I had to I, go to college before I found out about that. Even if you, even if you look at, that's true. Uh, even if you look at the, like the contemporary worship service that we have here at Northside, yeah. it follows a very common and Absolutely. very, very similar structure to the, the traditional worship service that we have. So if, if it's not liturgy, that distinguishes a traditional worship service from mm. uh, from a contemporary service. Do you, are there elements that you think do distinguish these two types of service? Like, are you you looking for a definition of no. traditional worship? No, no, I'm just uh, good luck. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> yeah, if I could do that, I could, I could write that book. Um, um, it would be even harder for us to come up with a definition for contemporary yeah, worship. Oh, yeah, I actually absolutely. Just say that, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, but we'll not, ask not, Matt not, not to rain on Matt's parade. No, no. And so, and I guess. Well, and see, what also complicates and informs some of my background is while the church I grew up in was, and the terms that I prefer, despite the fact that this, again, might be a little bit too academic, but is low church and high church yeah. expressions. Yeah. I think increasingly another um, piece that distinguishes worship expressions and actually i wouldn't even say that it dis- it distinguishes traditional from contemporary because you find i think you find this problem in both it is participatory versus non-participatory yeah i've heard you talk about this before um you know, to what extent are the people engaged yeah. and properly engaged and of course the notion of proper uh, that's mm, again another, another have fun defining that right um but um how how people are engaged and to what extent they're engaged varies from place to place. You find uh, plenty of um, quote unquote traditional worship services where beyond the choir singing and the clergy engaging in um, the liturgical actions of responsive readings and uh, time at the communion table, the congregation is not really that engaged at all. And you find plenty of again, quote, contemporary services where the congregation is actively and loudly uh, singing. Um, and so that, that's one of those things that doesn't get into a dis- distinguishing which is from which. But um, Right. But I think, I think that's a helpful distinction, participatory versus non-participatory. Um, in the high and low church qualifications, you, yeah. I know it does sound academic, but you, don't be afraid to be academic. Well, and oh, I was going to say, what complicates my experience is that in addition to being raised in a, quote, low church right. environment, 
And just to be clear, that's not a that's not a qualification of quality or anything like right, that. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds people, discriminatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, some people might. True. I know Nick over here is offended um, that he went to a low church. It, I'm tradition. trying not to be. You know, well, was, that's why I'm at Northside now. It, it was a church that you know we did not have stained glass. It was the entire floor was carpeted. Um, everything was driven by a sound system. Yeah. Um, during the course of my being raised in the church, the choir eventually went away. A drum set appeared. Yeah. It was not a. It was not how I now lead a music program now. You don't want to drum set sense. in the in the sanctuary, get you a little drum kit up we, there. Well, <laughs> I watched the, I watched, yeah, the church I grew up in really was more of a, a blended service. Sure. Yeah. Um, and slowly watched, yeah, the choir kind of dwindle and they got rid of the robes and now it's yep. a praise team and, and for yeah. for two years in my upbringing though I sang in a boy choir where I sang Roman Catholic mass regularly yeah and so that just throws a huge curveball in not just my musical experience and influences which was dramatic but then also my worship experience i i never experienced really much of a different form of worship in my life before let alone literally incense robed catholic mass you know um and and that was a radical um experience and shift for me so one of the other things that you uh notice about a key difference between high church and low church uh worship styles is architecture mm-hmm. is often different and how the sanctuary is set up is often different nick i'm sure that you and I both grew up in churches where the pulpit was in the middle of the of the stage of the platform, uh, and with a, maybe a communion table in front of it that says "Do this in remembrance of me" carved oh, into it. That's what I grew up with. Yep. Okay. So and uh, Jesus's initials on there. That's right. Right. Um, and then that, oh, is that what IHS means? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, so um, uh. I guess you've had some experience in different churches with different styles of worship and yeah. stuff. And how, how have you seen, I guess, how have you seen the architecture of the different churches you've worked at play into worship? And how do you think our sanctuary functions in our worship? This is a much bigger question than people, I think, spend time thinking about. Yeah. Um, it plays, but there's some value in that, right? I mean, yes, it, yeah. it, it plays a lot into a lot. Um, and as with any building and architectural decisions, there's always going to be positives and negatives to about any single thing you, you, you try to bring up. Um, I I was raised in a church kind of like you described with a pulpit that was centrally located where the, where quote the word was preached. Um, I once heard a very eloquent argument even given as to, and it was very strongly worded (laughs) that, why pulpits needed to be large for a preacher to preach behind. And this this individual was arguing specifically against sort of the typical plexiglass clear thing that most um, contemporary services tend to have, or just, you know, like a table with a uh, exposed Uh preacher. This, this person's argument was there needed to be a barrier of a literal physical barrier between the preacher and the congregation to remind the congregation that it was not, the human who was speaking. Yeah. I, like I was that. like, I mean, I, I actually kind of like that. It was a power. I think it's kind of a powerful argument. Yeah. Yeah. Was the um, baptismal font directly behind the pulpit? <laughs> of course right, well, it was usually built into the wall. Right? What, and what's interesting is I've seen places where kind of like you described and where you and I both grew up where yeah. right below the pulpit was where the communion table uh-huh. was. Absolutely. Um, I've uh, been in, I've not served in these church, but I've been in some where it's kind of a fascinating thing where pulpit was centrally located yeah and both the font and the table were off the platform and intentionally put off to the side oh wow um and they actually had a brochure on the architecture of their sanctuary at this church so very intentional and and they talked about how the sacraments were lower than the word than the word and and i remember kind of thinking to myself i don't 
I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I said um, font, I should have said pool. Right. Well, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what's interesting in a lot of Baptisty type places, the thing that's actually most elevated yeah. tends to be the baptistry. Oh, definitely. Which is its own fascinating mm-hmm. uh, liturgical, liturgical or architectural cue yeah. as to what's valued and what's important. Um, you're, to back to your point of so, our yeah, sanctuary. So when you Sorry. walk in, so when, no, no, that's just great. Uh, so when you walk into our our uh, sanctuary, you what do you see? What is our what does the architecture of of Northside tell you about what we believe? That's that's a good question. And then sometimes how a room I've heard this phrase before: how a room preaches mm-hmm. um, is its own um, form of it's a visual sermon. Yeah, in yeah. a way, that's why some churches are intentionally designed in the shape in the shape of a cross. Um, why they have crosses present, you know, if you look through the stained glass, there are various elements of the story of Scripture, the story of Christ represented in our stained glass. Yep. Um, right at the the center rose window above our chancel is of the Last Supper. Yeah. Um, but what's I would say intentional and unique in terms of uh, how the founding fathers and mothers of Northside decided to build our sanctuary is that the first thing you see when you walk in is an altar. Yeah. And it's not a communion table. It is an altar. An altar. Yeah. And that's not true in all Methodist churches. Yeah. And it also is built in a way that's reflective of a, quote, altar theology of communion. Yeah. Um, a more Eucharistic right. uh, representation of communion. The table, if you will. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the the... And it's interesting, even since we've, um, all three of us have served at Northside over a various period of time, how communion functionally is done has been done in different ways. Um, The way our room is designed is actually not designed for the congregation to participate in communion. It's designed for the congregation to receive communion. It's very Catholic, in other words, you might oh, say. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but, but we have ourselves adapted that to be different. So we involve the congregation in the communion liturgy. Um, we now br- very intentionally and openly bring the elements down from the table to yeah. the people. Um, there, there's a lot of small visual cues like that that uh, change what it is that it says you believe. Um, I remember uh, hearing uh, the, you know, the confirmation class comes to the sanctuary uh, as a part of their time. And I uh, stumbled in there when they were uh, doing their tour of the sanctuary as part of confirmation. And one of the teachers said something really fascinating. It's, it stuck with me. And he, he had all of the students up in the choir loft area. And he said to the students, you have just now entered the church. Oh, wow. And and the point I think that he was trying to bring home is that this is where communion takes place. Yeah. This is where you kneel when you get married. Uh-huh. This is where you kneel for confirmation. Yeah. This is where the sermon is done from yeah and it was this idea that up here in the chancel is almost its own unique sacred ground that uh, you can get into a long high sure church low church yeah, debate sure, about sure. that yeah. uh, i i'm not sure i entirely just agree with that definition but it's how the church is built yeah absolutely um that whole area is elevated well they're um, definitely I, I will say um that altar rail for me kind of forms a barrier every time i cross it it feels a little bit like, am I well, allowed to be here? And yeah. going so going back to that very thing with the altar rail, um, and we still have these. It's actually they're in a closet right off the organ. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of more of an Episcopal design yeah. of a church, that altar rail is, was originally gated, and we still have the gates. Oh, we wow. hang the gates back up we and close oh, it. Yeah. We still, we still I did not know that. All right, so I want to I want to talk just a little bit longer about this architecture thing because I find it fascinating, and I think that the the way that a sanctuary and a church in general, but a sanctuary is structured, um, has an influence on how we think as well as how we worship. Mm-hmm. So it has an impact on uh on the way that we organize religious thoughts in our head. Let's say it that way. Um, and so Nick, I want to ask you, um, you know, if you wanted to 
describe what your sanctuary looked like growing up, which I think we probably already know. But um, how do you think it might have had an impact on you growing up? Just the architecture of your church or the churches that you participated in? I mean, the church that I grew up in was built. The sanctuary was built in the 90s. Um, and it was white walls in an octagonal shape with a balcony and green carpet and like when I say green, I don't mean hunter green. I mean like more of a teal aqua green. And of course the nice. pew fabric matched it as well. Um, with a massive choir loft across the back, um, three or four tiers. You had a few chairs on the stage for the pastor pulpit centrally located table up front in the middle. Um, baptismal font centered behind all that baptismal pool centered behind all that. Um, it was a, a large cavernous room, no stained glass. Yeah. Um, Christian flag on one side, American flag on the other. Oh, I forgot about the Christian flag. Yeah. 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 Um, but it is so, interesting that we do have, have flags in the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Do we have an American flag in this thing? We do. Yeah. And that, I think that ties in, um, in some ways, specifically with Methodism, the, the tie in with civil religion. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in sort of both definitions of that, in, in that, um, Methodism as a movement before denomination is so closely tied to the development of the American government system. Absolutely. Um, as well as the notion that there is a certain pageantry and religiosity to being an American yeah. that at times um, appears within our services and not just unique to Northside, but is common I think uniquely to a lot of American Christianity. Yeah, well, I, I think um, even I, I mean, you could make the argument that Methodist is the first true American denomination or or segment. It wasn't not United Methodist, but the whole mm-hmm. Methodism movement. Well, and whether it's that in the South, particularly in Georgia, yeah. um, or if you move up to the Northeast, you're probably looking more at like Congregationalists and Puritans. Yeah, that's true. But in both situations, the the notion of the church being also the community meeting house yeah where you had both sermons on sunday and then community town halls on thursday yeah happening literally in the same in space church, yeah. it, it were, were were very different than europe yeah in that regard yeah. where there was ironically despite the fact that we verbalized separation of church and state you had it much more physically divided yeah in where we came from Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting conundrum that I think we are, st- I don't want to say that we're plagued with, cause I don't think it's, um, it's an ill upon either the church or right. upon society, but I think it's something we still grapple with how to, it's a tension that yeah. it's hard to resolve. Um, and maybe it shouldn't be resolved. Um, how did you, Nick, how did you feel like the architecture of your, your church affected you growing up though? Affected how you think of worship? Um, you know, we didn't, there, there were not, there were not the cues around the room, like the stained glass that we have at Northside and mm-hmm. the inscriptions. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot more symbolism going on in our sanctuary. Um, there was nothing, oh man, they would every now and then hang up a banner. That was a, that was a thing. I never liked them, but they would hang up banners. Um, <laughs> But the, yeah, you didn't have it, it. It it wasn't a robust space. It was more of a blank slate. Um, and I can't say that I'd ever considered how intentional it was for it to be a blank slate. But it was a blank slate, and it was driven again by a sound system. Um, it was not designed to be a space that you could preach in or do music in without being amplified. Um, gosh, and I bet that sanctuary could seat. 1500 a thousand oh wow yeah it was large what's interesting to me in terms of your comment about sound system is that if you know let's rewind the clock a thousand years or more and because there are stone cathedrals in europe that are more than a thousand years old and they're still standing and still holding worship services yeah and while yes actually they do now have pa systems that they have figured out how to install the first experiments in pre-electricity um, 
amplification was driven by the need to hear yeah. uh, the sermon uh, in a church setting. Yeah. Um, so whether or not you had specific places where sound projected better from, and as a, and that's part of why things like the location of choir and preacher tend to be in a space that sound projects from. And even though we now have amplification systems and all that stuff, we st- we've not actually changed where we locate yeah. <laughs> choir and preacher. Yeah. The architecture becomes important, right? In yeah. the way that we think, in the well, way that we worship. The, the, the invention of stained glass from an like an art philosophy standpoint, like we look at it now and we see stories and certainly in pre-literate society, that was hugely important to be able to visually see the story. But beyond that, the notion of light being filtered and entering into a room was also supposed to be a visual symbol and visual representation of the incarnation um, where you know, just as the Holy Spirit entered a human yeah. and thus begat Christ, right. so to light filters into a room, fills it with beauty, yeah, um, and and illuminates it. Sometimes, um, sometimes uh, uh, Doctor Bill will will post uh, photos on Facebook that yeah. have uh, you know when he's in there practicing yeah. a sermon or, or whenever uh, praying, and you you can see exactly what you're talking about that kind of beauty in those photographs. I appreciate that a lot. Well, it is an interesting. Uh, recognition of what what many reasons go into designing a sanctuary the way that it's designed because I think that um, now there's I've, I've definitely heard arguments around you know why spend so much money in building a worship space why does a worship space need to be stained glass and stone and um, you know why not just renovate a warehouse and put in a sound system and you can have worship well, um, and that that kind of brings me actually to the last question I have on the architecture thing. I just I think about this a lot, but um, obviously, uh, our, our contemporary worship service we do in the Faith and Arts Center, which is just a big room, and it has a platform up there where we put the band and we put a little plexiglass, uh, plexiglass, uh, lectern, pulpit, yeah, lectern, and we have a big the big table that sits down there on the floor, um, not elevated on the stage. Unlike our sanctuary, it doesn't even say this. Doing remembrance, it doesn't say anything. But it does. However, it does have both a cross and it has two flames. Two flames, Mm -hmm. which uh, typically, and we just like we have two candles on the altar in the sanctuary, and that typically represents two things. You have Old and New Testament in its symbolism, and you also have the divinity and humanity of Christ. That is what uh, candles at the altar typically symbolize. Are those two things? And so, even in our contemporary worship space there are still some some yeah. mild visual cues that well, and that's, we have that's what i was going to ask you I, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to, to participate or or see our contemporary worship service because oh, yeah. you know you're usually doing other things uh other kinds of worship um but I, I was i'm curious as to you have you know in most contemporary worship services i've ever been to the architect the architecture is not given that much thought i actually believe it or not disagree with you all right um i think it's Good. just it's given different thought okay um, yeah. i think one of the primary motivators and you talked a little bit about this just a second ago in describing your church built in the 90s um the the notion of how does this room hold the most number of people yeah. given the expense of building out the square footage mm-hmm. and essentially how can it hold and um house our amplification system most robustly. Those are not simple architectural questions. Right. Um, in the same way that, you know, how do, how do acoustics work and how do you elevate a space? You know, where do you place the organ? Those are some of the questions you might ask in a traditional space, but just because a room is not either as lavish, perhaps, yeah. I don't think does not necessitate that it's not being thought that, about. And that's, that's exactly right. I, I, I probably misstated there. It, it's a different set of theological concerns, though, right? I guess if you're theolo- I guess the way that you would frame that as a theological concern is you want the most people in the service yeah, as possible. I, well, and what does it say about you know, sixty-five plus years ago, 
um, the Northside Sanctuary was built to look like a sanctuary that would have built been built 500 years ago. Yes and no, though, because e- even there, um, the fact that our chancel is sort of its own, uh, you know, um, secluded room in the way that it is, um, was was built in in a way that was modern and present at, at the time. Hmm. Um, and even the uh, typical American A-frame church, whether it's um, a little bit more fancy, perhaps, like our sanctuary is, or even the you know more carpeted, quote, low church sanctuary that I grew mm-hmm. up in yep. was still the A-frame design. Yep. That comes from the notion of being um, held in the hull of a ship. Right. And you are cradled in the ark of God. Yeah. Um, and the curves of our arches in our sanctuary lend itself even more to that yeah. imagery um, versus versus sort of the Roman pillared uh, mm-hmm. renditions of some sanctuaries as well, which gives off a different, uh, whole, whole different connotation. Yeah. All right, let's move away from architecture um, and talk a little bit more about uh, actual worship. Earlier you said, Michael, you were quoting somebody, and I don't remember who you were quoting, but somebody said that um, what you sing is what you believe. Am I getting Mm -hmm. that quote right? Mm -hmm. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me uh, when we're talking about worship in the church, when we're talking about what we sing in our actual sanctuaries or in our Faith and Arts Center. What about other forms of singing, like pop music or whatever it is that we're singing out there. Do you think it has the same kind of formative effect? Do you think it's a, a form of worship that's not directed at God necessarily? Uh, Bring well, in the that, softball questions yeah, this week. Well, that, is a, that was a big concern. A big, that was a big concern a big, for my tradition growing up. Um, yeah. You know, what you listen to is, is who you become. That's, a, I think, a huge philosophical question mm-hmm. um no easy that answers ha- that, yeah right and it's it's not that it's a difficult question to answer it's that the question itself does not have an easy answer yeah um i'm forgetting this guy's name he's a theology guy up at yale um wrote not just about worship but about the context of art generally and um in terms of what what exactly does it mean to have quote Christian art? And, yeah. and he meant that in, in its broadest terms. Um, and where he planted his flag, and I tend to go here myself, is that the purpose and intent behind art is where then we find its uh, place. Um, that is a sort of a both a presuppositionalist and a original intent form of philosophy that yeah. not everyone subscribes to not just about art but all sure. sorts of things i mean can you say a little bit more about what you mean um what you mean by its place is determined by its its intention or what do you what exactly do you mean by that sure um well i i think there are there's an argument to be had that um in beauty we find God. Yeah. Um, and that becomes tricky when you, if you, if you run that argument out to its fullest extent, then right. suddenly you're worshiping a leaf. Right. Um, which is a problem. <laughs> um, because I mean, we don't hold the animism either. At sure. Least I don't. Um, do a little land before time. Tree we star don't. thing. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do we? Let, let me check the book. Nope, real quick. Let me check out. the book. Um, on on the other hand, if you strictly stick to intent, then you start having to deal with how do we judge right. people's intent, um, whether it's composers, uh, lyricists, right. um, an artist who's making or painting something. I mean, it, it, you get into uh, the whole question of, well, isn't it God's job right. <laughs> to, right. to handle that? It, to, to some degree, the question that you're posing is the very first question that we don't have a clear answer to in scripture, which is Cain and Abel. Okay. Um, yes. Wh- wh- and by that, I mean... It, uh, oh, and, and I like this. Coming back around. I, I like and, it. And Bill mentioned this when he t- um, preached on Cain and Abel a few weeks ago, um, in that 
despite scholars' continued attempts to source both from Jewish understandings, um, ancient Near Eastern understandings, why is it that Abel's sacrifice was more pleasing to God than Cain's? Yeah. And there, I, one of the things that I always heard growing up was, well, it was it was Abel's heart, right? And and I'm not, not, not I'm in not, the text, though. right? Not I'm not I'm not trying to discount <laughs> that 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 argument or or that theology, but there is nothing in Scripture yeah. that points to that. Yeah. Um. Not that again. Not that that's a bad reasoning at all. Yeah. Um. But there was something about the nature of the sacrifice that was more pleasing. Um. So too we come to the yeah, question on what is there intent behind art or is it the art itself? Right. Um. And I, that, that's a, that's a you're ask, you're asking a question that is hard to answer. I'm trying to cop out a little bit. <laughs> you are copping out a little bit, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a pass on it because it is a hard question, one that I've one that I've been struggling with uh, for a while. And I, I I take that not just in music terms, in all of uh, secular culture. Yeah. Um, the kind of art that we're talking about, I think, also bleeds into. Well, I I think in um, again not to get too into the weeds here yeah. but I, I think the philosophical realm and study of aesthetics is not as far removed from things like ethics and theology sure. as we often try to divorce and compartmentalize yeah. everything um the, you, the, I mean, the, the notion of something being good mm -hmm. something being bad something being beautiful something being ugly yeah um there there are concrete ways that we evaluate that um, but there's also a constant moving target in sure. terms of how that's evaluated. Yeah. Um, otherwise we wouldn't have different eras of art. Um, yeah. we, you wouldn't have art critics, right. <laughs> both modern and looking back on things. And maybe this gets back to the question of traditional versus contemporary worship. You can have something that is good, but of a different style, right? So you get into questions of technique and style that are more subjective than the objective good that you're trying to aim at with worship. The language I try to use rather than style, although uh, I get your point, yeah, right. is, ex is expression. And the okay. reason I say that is, although we call the worship that happens in the sanctuary traditional, there are times that the choir is singing an anthem that was written that year. So how is that not contemporary? Right. Because uh, from a date perspective, it certainly is. Sure. Um, but how it is written and the source that it's being drawn from comes from, you know, hundreds of years. Right. Of, I mean, it comes from a deep, a long tradition. Right? Do you I keep mean, track I, of the average age of the music that we're doing in traditional worship? Or well, I mean, I I can guarantee you every single week that we are at least doing music that's about five hundred years old because the doxology, the music for the doxology was written in fifteen fifty one. There you go. So um, we know it that at least, <laughs> and okay. the words of the doxology were arguably written by Ambrose, which is fourth century. Um, so, but then, then from from there, I think to most people, we are not going to distinguish. I don't even distinguish, if I'm being honest. Yeah. What is the active musical difference between something like the doxology, written in the 1500s, versus, um, praise to the Lord the Almighty? Yeah. Which is written in the late 1800s. Well, there's. That's, yeah, a, that's, big that's a big gap of time, yeah. and yet we don't actively discriminate between that as a style. Um, you know, music. My, me and my musical nerd friends could certainly do so. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're both old, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's all they, right. Yeah. Um, and yet, how um, choral music is composed fo follows and flows in that same vein, still to the present day. Well, I, you know, it surprised me to realize. Um, going back and looking at that Baptist hymn, hymnal, how much stuff from, say, the 60s has gotten into the Baptist hymnal. Um, the, and this gets into the whole problem of even defining traditional and contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, there are times when people ask the question, quote, why can't we just sing some old hymns? 
sometimes what is meant by that is hymns from a, a particular set of decades, not necessarily. They're not. They're not wanting to go back to Gregorian chant when they say that comment. Well, right? so this is an interesting then perspective on that. As 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 Northside has grown, we have incorporated people into the church from a variety of denominational yes. backgrounds, from a variety of high church, low church experiences, mm-hmm. and in many cases, Northside has become kind of this happy medium. Um, you know, she was Catholic, he was Baptist, they got married, and now they come to Northside. We have so many stories <laughs> like that in this church. So it's, many. I mean, it's that, that exact story, Catholic and Baptist. Yeah. And so coming up with a way to um, create a worship experience yeah. that both of them can identify with. And when they say these old hymns, what they're I'm presuming they're talking about is the ones they grew up with. Right. So if you were just psychic and you could, I mean, I was even teasing you earlier this week about, could you do this hymn? Um, because that's one that I grew up with and I haven't heard in a while. Um, so what what goes into crafting a worship service that is crossing all those? Um, and this is something that's difficult in, in some ways is, you know, I, I'm coming up on five years at Northside. And this is something I'm still not hundred percent knowledgeable, which is what are all the songs that we know to sing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what's always, well, and, I'll make and, you a list. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's been, th- that's been a, in some ways a weird question to even be considering in the midst of a time that we're not meeting yeah. in person for worship. And yet you still want people to hear and experience the familiar, even online, uh, whether, whether or not mm-hmm. they're singing at home or, uh, and in some ways, it might even be more important for them to hear right. the familiar. Right. Um, there was a Sunday. This has probably been a couple of years ago now. That Nick and I, for some reason, we were able to attend the eleven o'clock worship. Maybe. Yeah. And we got we went down and sat together in mm-hmm. like on the front row. And yeah. there was we did a, a medley of like old classic. Like mm-hmm. I can't even remember we what they. And we were killing it. We were knocking out the park. <laughs> but think about it okay, was so much th- fun. Think about the language you just used. Yeah. You said old classic. Right, which, by which I mean 1965. Right, apparently. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, we're talking exactly, about the Gaithers. Right, <laughs> bingo. Um, and, and I mean, I know what you mean. Uh, yesterday's contemporary is today's traditional. Uh-huh. And, and and see that that's the fascinating thing. I mean, uh, a hymnal that um, I will occasionally use as a reference point and pull from um, is a hymnal. I think it was published. I want to say in 76 or 78. Just a marriage. Um, and it w- it's known in part because it was edited by uh, the Gaithers in terms of how it was compiled and put together. Um, and it includes a lot of their songs yeah. and that sort of thing. The reason why that was such a, an important hymnal when it was published is it was in at that time, using the language that we would use now, it was considered a contemporary music resource. Yeah. Now we look at it as an outdated hymnal. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> quite a big gap in terms of how a how a book is viewed and used. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I come sometimes wonder, you know, how will contemporary resources being used today be viewed at some point? I mean, even most denominations recycle their hymnals at, at a certain point. Methodist Church has not done so. I, I try to concern myself with admittedly trying to craft something that hopefully lends itself more towards timelessness more often than not. Yeah. Um, but even that is... That's interesting. But the definition of timelessness is moving. Well, and Bingo. And another consideration to think about, and I wonder if this crosses your mind, when when we're putting together a worship service and and selecting the music that we're going to play, do you intentionally, do you have a a catalog of songs that you have on repeat, so so to speak, so that you can, uh, a catalog of songs that you have on repeat so that you can, um, you teach, so so that if I grow up in this church... I know that we sing this song on a regular basis or something like that. I mean, because that's something that growing up was very important for me. In terms of a catalog of songs, I, yes and no. I mean, I, I I don't try to hold myself or enslave myself to a specific list, but we do keep a running log of what we sing in part so I know that I'm not repeating things too often. Yeah. Um, 
which so it's the opposite concern for you than I guess my my thing is I think I don't know if it's important or not, but uh, no, it, it it is. No, the the question you're asking is very important because I mean our our hymnal, um, even though it is admittedly out of date, the Methodist hymnal was published in 1989, um, and it has a believe um a little over 700 hymns in it yeah um no congregation no knows 700, 700 hymns, hymns. Yeah. um we we know we know like in our bones at Northside, we know more than 100 but even there we know 100 different texts we don't necessarily know 100 different tunes because we right. sing some texts to the same tune um so my bigger thing is I I do my best to try to not repeat a hymn um, unless eight weeks have passed. That is an entirely just subjective choice on my part. Right. Um. I, there. There's no you know reasoning. What, no. No good reasoning behind it. You and what is? Do you have a concern with being repetitive though? Is there is there something that you're in part to ensure that both variety and quite frankly the volume of what we're digesting is maximized as much as possible do you, do you think there would be a, a value in um would you would there be a value in a congregation like northside or or church similar to northside making their own hymn book a book of the films that they do know um i know i know some that have done that um what's interesting is that even on that front the minute you start going down that path it's amazing how large the collection suddenly becomes about 700 or so right <laughs> uh, because you have well what about this song and right. well we want to learn this song eventually so yeah, let's put this in yeah. there as well um and what's always inevitable is that those sorts of collections eventually themselves once again go out of date either because certain songs sure don't mean you know i i mentioned praise lord the almighty as, yeah. as an example and uh that was uh, translated by it's a German hymn that was translated by Catherine Winkworth, incredibly important figure in the development of church music because she translated many, many, many German and Lutheran hymns into English. Um, despite all of her work and her her great importance to the history of church music, there's only a handful of her hymns and translations that we're still singing today. 150 years later yeah um and that's always going to be true the, the the church continuously is um sifting right. um what what we then decide is timeless unless it's charles wesley and then it's always timeless uh, right. right i imagine yeah <laughs> but even there, yeah, uh, the, even, the, there. The, the, even there i think one of the interesting conundrums you get of with uh with with the Wesleys is the extent to which those texts may or may not be altered. Um, I mean, arguably one of the most famous Christmas carols is a Wesley carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah. And yet there are several, several phrases that we do not sing the same texts because of different movements in theology over time. Yeah. You you're a big fan of the Bible. You you uh you like the scriptures a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so I guess um there's a couple different ways I can ask this question, so you can just take it take it as you want it. Um, but I'd like to hear I'd like to hear a little bit about what you think about worship in the Bible. Where do you where do we see worship in the Bible? Maybe or you could, if you want to try to limit that down to like what's your favorite part of worship in the Bible or the favorite. I will. I will. Yes, I will. I say something about I, worship I have, in the Bible. I haven't answered this question. It may not satisfy your what you're wanting me to say, but I'm, I'm I'll I'll tell you a story. Okay, good. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I was uh, in Cambridge, England, and found this with some friends this old uh, bookstore behind King's College, and uh, I felt like I was walking into you know, a room in Minas Tirith from Middle Earth. It was just stacks of ever so slightly mildly organized old books, <laughs> all for sale. <laughs> and I was in heaven. And uh, one of my friends in the in the far back room of this bookshop found in these little uh, drawers that were like trays, this completely unbound 
1648 Bible, and each individual page was for sale primarily as a collectible. And I, I mean, I was fascinated. I was like, I got to get some of these pages just to, just to have one. And as you can imagine, something that old, something kind of that unique, all of the famous passages of scripture are, are gone. So Genesis gone, yeah. all the gospels gone, <laughs> all the epistles of Paul gone. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I don't want, don't want to just grab a random Did page. You stuck of the with Bible. Jude? Is that what you guys right, right, right. <laughs> but I, I was like, I don't want to just grab a random page of the Bible. I do want something significant Meaningful, and maybe yeah. special to me. Yeah. So I, I, I start thinking, okay, is there some obscure passage of the scripture that I really like that might still be here? And immediately my brain went to uh, First Chronicles. And um, and that whole that whole book was still there. First Chronicles, it, it, the, the whole book was still thing. there. <laughs> On sale, probably. Also also added to the whole notion of Minas Tirith because they've got just you know long list of kings, right? Um but oh, the genealogy of David still there. All right, great. And I'm I again off the top of my head, I'm forgetting if it's uh, chapter twenty four or twenty five, uh-huh. but um it's a, a section in First Chronicles, and I promise I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, give me ahead. another moment. You're here. doing great. Um there's there's a verse uh in that that chapter talks about the section of the tribe of levites being set aside for care of worship in the temple okay and sure enough i found that's amazing this, this page yeah from a 1648 bible i got it framed it's in my house that's awesome um and but there's a verse that mentions that these levites are to be skillfully trained mm. and in the myriad of things that we talk about with qualifications in terms of worship leadership, and granted, what what this chapter is talking about is specifically about music yeah. in the temple. They're, they're not talking about care for some of the other actions of worship that's prescribed. They're talking specifically about music, that they are to be skillfully trained. Um, and that has long informed some of my own desire to always be learning. Yeah to teach others and train others. Um, and to a degree that as Christians, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. I think there's something also that we can carry over as a commandment for all Christians to be skillfully trained in music. Yeah. Um, not that that's some sort of qualification or, or, or a place of judging one another or anything like that, right. but but that this is what it means to actively engage the faith is to actively engage musicianship. Yeah, I would imagine, and I w- that's that makes more sense to folks who believe that worship and particularly music in the church plays a central role in their faith. And there, there are folks who believe that less, more and less strongly. Right? Oh, sure. So you're familiar with a scholar named Marva Dawn, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I'm I'm mostly a big fan of hers, but um. A little controversial. She, yeah, she is, and she has this <laughs> idea that uh, that worship needs to be done with the utmost excellence, and excellence is something that we've talked about a lot around here, and the quality of the product, so to speak. I don't want to call it a product, but the quality of what we do here. Um, I've heard you speak about excellence and how that's important to you in worship, and how it's really just important across the board uh, in our lives. What does excellence bring to our worship that is? That is important. If that's not, if that's not, might be all over the place. But no, it's that's not all over the place. It's it's another one of those, in some ways, a hard question to answer. Yeah. Um, Let me tell you. So where it comes from is this: I, I agree with you, um, but I had to get there. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a tradition again where excellence wasn't really the biggest important thing. It was the fact that you just showed up to sing sure. was an important thing. So when we're talking about um, people showing up to worship. You know, some people don't sing because they don't feel like they have a good voice or Mm -hmm. some people won't participate in the choir because they feel like they don't have a good voice or some people won't um, participate in any part of worship. They won't read liturgy or whatever else because they feel like they can't do it well. And I feel I've Mm -hmm. always felt as though, um, man, those people should be doing it anyway. Right. Even if they can't bring the utmost excellence to it. There's a personal excellence maybe that they, they need to aspire to. Or maybe it's more like what you were saying, that the church's role is to train those folks, you know, so they feel comfortable um, engaging in worship at the same level as everybody else does. I, at the same time, so I grew up thinking that. At the same time, I have come to realize the importance of excellence and the quality of what we do speaks to our passion and speaks to our faith as much as anything else. Um, yeah. Uh, let me see if I can offer some analogies that might nuance both what I 
think and hopefully can inspire some thought for you too. Um, I think what makes, again, this a difficult question to answer is the notion of if we say that we value excellence, who then defines what excellence is? Mm. Um, and that's true in, in in anything that's done, quite frankly, in and out of the church. Yep. Um, I, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to still have a conversation, though, about trying to define what that is. Sure. In the context of worship broadly, but music specifically, what I would say is the minute excellence becomes a barrier, you're no longer talking about excellence. And here's the analogy I'll give. I, th I think oftentimes we look at excellence as being, if you will, the, the speed or the speedometer on okay. what's going on mm -hmm. versus the engine. Um, in term, and what I mean by that is excellence is what fuels something. It's not the result of the end product. Um, and I, I think the minute we start viewing things through that lens, it, it changes dramatically both desire to be trained, educated, knowledgeable. I like this idea of excellence. Um, not being the end goal, but being the, the thing that drives is that. Is that how you said it? That might excellence is something that you start with, not something you end with. Okay. I also think it then when you think about it from that perspective, excellence becomes something that inspires and motivates yeah. rather than something that um, is cause for concern. Right. In the minds of many people. And you know, I bet that's true. Just kind of talking off the cuff here, but I bet that's true in everything that we do. You right. know, when someone's inspired to do something, whether it's a career or, or an activity or anything, you do it because you saw it done well, mm -hmm. right? And it, it, you know, if you want to be a football player, you saw Barry Sanders, you know, and you're like, I, I got to be a running back, right? Or you see Michael Jordan, you want to be a basketball player. And maybe maybe not all of us get that, get that far <laughs> down the path, but it's the same with anything else in life, you know, that you see it done well with excellence and that's what there's inspiration you yeah. know yeah i mean i find it very hard to believe that not just by modern standards but even by ancient standards i find it hard to believe that every single israelite had a beautiful voice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet there is one of the consistent commands of scripture yeah is sing to the Lord. Yeah. In fact, I think it's the most frequent command in the Bible. Praise to give praise. So to when, God, when people when people say, "Well, why why should I sing?" We literally the Bible can't turn to them so. and say, "The Bible <laughs> the Bible says to." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. I got one last question for you, Michael, before I let you go. Um, and I want to know, my favorite hymn of all time is Blessed Assurance. I love that hymn. Uh, I don't know if it's just because I sang it all the time as a kid. Uh, that and the other one, which I can never remember the name of, but it's the one that has amazing love. Yeah, yeah. and can it be. And can it be. That's right, 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 right. <laughs> and can it be. Yeah. So uh, those are my two favorite. I, I don't know which one I would pick if I had to pick one for the rest of my life. I love them both so much. But mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite hymn? Uh, I have to pick two because yeah. I've got to pick one that's Christmas. Okay. As well as I'll, I'll let you. I'll one. let you have a normal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> we're doing subcategories now. Um, my favorite. Well, my favorite Christmas carol is "O Come All Ye Faithful," and uh, I I actually like the full version that has many, many, many more verses. Um, in part because it walks through more of the whole Christmas story. Yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite verses that we nobody sings nobody sings is uh the verse that talks actually about the three kings even though it's not technically part of the christmas story but you know <laughs> but it's it starts so it's um, an epiphany hymn is that right, right? <laughs> it, it, it starts low starled chieftains um and i just think that's a fantastic <laughs> phrase <laughs> I like that. Well, yeah. um but my favorite you know day-to-day week-to-week hymn is grave's thy faithfulness oh that's a good one that's yeah. a good one, that's a good one. Nicky, and not yeah. terribly old actually 1965? <laughs> Something like that, right. <laughs> I think 1913, actually. Okay, all right. All right. Or 1933. There's a three in there somewhere. Why Why do you like that one in particular? Uh, it, it, it speaks not only to um, God's faithfulness, um, which is the point of the hymn and the constant return of the refrain, but 
um, the different ways that God's promises are shown um, to us, whether it's talking about um, God's movement in nature, uh, whether it's talking directly about Christ's sacrifice at, at the cross, um, the notion of God's promise being tied directly to God's faithfulness um, and what those promises are. Uh, there, there's both. I think I like the fact that it's a hymn that in a unique way marries concrete and abstract um, that with, with, like the with, book of with, Romans with a tune <laughs> that I think is very singable. Yeah, um, I was going back to the Roman road. I was about to say, this is a lot like Romans. Uh, yeah. Nick, you got a favorite hymn? My favorite hymn Lord, is... Lord, I lift your name on high. No, it's not. Now, that's not even there. You want to maybe that uh, the top praise courses of my youth group. There oh, you go. Yeah. I can play um, right now. I know you can. You have. <laughs> um, I, my favorite hymn is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Um, yeah, kind of similarly... For me, it speaks to um, the sacrifice, but also there's some awfulness to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in <laughs> in in the definitional sense, both ways. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, with with that hymn, the the ending. Um, you know, there, there's there's a sort of a famous arrangement for uh, choirs that we've sung several times here at Northside, even. But the the big crescendo of that arrangement, which is I would also argue the crescendo of the hymn text itself is the very last line demands my soul, my life, my all. And the outward motion of those concentric circles yeah. um, is so um, all-encompassing. All yeah. uh, and it's both a wonderful and terrifying yeah. thing to, to sing. Mm-hmm. I like that. Did we cover anything? Is there anything that we didn't cover, Michael, that you wanted to uh, jump into? Nick, did you have Nick's any got questions? Well, I, I had, a, I had <laughs> another thought. I want to know if it's just me that doesn't know the second verse of any hymns because <laughs> we always sing the first, third, and fourth or something like that. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to come up here and talk with yeah, us today. Um, really appreciate you, and I'm, I'm, I have no doubt that Northside will appreciate hearing your voice on some of these things and, and just getting to know you a little bit better. And they can hear you at 8 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. on Sunday morning <laughs> online. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Worship, worship, worship. Um, anyway, thank you so much, Mike. You bet.